spent 14 or 15 months establishing them and training them to be able to, uh, to run a successful church, uh, but then he found out that uh, they had lost their way, and the church that he had set up and trained had become very, very carnal and very self-righteous and religious and immoral, and so he, uh, he had to do something, so he wrote these letters to not just discipline them, but he wanted to discipline them and encourage them and kind of restore them to the godliness that they started at. Now, before we took our two-week break for Easter, uh, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we were talking about spiritual gifts. He's going to be continuing that topic for all the way through chapter 14. He's going to be continuing that topic. Uh, and this week, Paul's going to be discussing uh, what's considered the greatest of all gifts. Anybody guess what that is? Love. That's right. Love is the greatest of all gifts. Uh, so over, uh, over the years, people, when they hear 1 Corinthians 13, especially 4 through 8, they think of what? Weddings. They think of weddings. I've even heard people call it the wedding verses, which is kind of funny because that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he, wasn't even, he wasn't even thinking about that. But, but you see them a lot in weddings, and it wasn't even in Paul's mind. Remember, he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he's talking to people who have lost their way, and he's trying to teach them how to appropriately use their spiritual gifts. Uh, but there's so much more in here than just these fuzzy words for newlyweds that we think of because Paul wrote this to teach the Corinthians the superiority of love, how important love is in any gift. And he reminded them that love had to be the motivation behind every gift. It had to be the motivation behind every spiritual gift because if the motivation is not behind, if love is not the motivation behind spiritual gifts, then they're just worthless. It doesn't matter how good you feel like you are at them. If love isn't the base of it, it's worthless. So I titled this message, A Portrait of Love, because God's love, the way Paul paints this picture, I mean, it just it shows that God's love is his masterpiece. I love it. So let's take a look at this. Now, I I'm going to let you know right away we're not going to get through all of it, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels who do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have... Uh, all faith so as to move or remove mountains but do not have love I am what? nothing and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love it profits me nothing okay powerful powerful start see the Corinthians loved brilliant orators people who are well spoken they loved philosophers they loved the brilliant teachers of their day that was who they looked up to because the Grecian culture basically worshipped knowledge and those who had it. So it had, it had kind of faded into their culture a little bit and so they wanted so bad. Those are the people that they really looked up to and so the Corinthian church, a lot of people in the Corinthian church wanted gifts that would make them be as admired as the philosophers and, and the teachers and as the orators that they loved so much. But a lot of those gifts were starting to become a problem because they were doing them for the wrong reason. For instance, uh, the misuse of tongues in the Corinthian church had become a serious problem. It was becoming an issue that was just couldn't be ignored. See, the pagans claimed to have uh, some gifts that were, you know, close to that, to, to the gift of tongues. So there was a pagan version of what we look at as tongues, right? And as I said in chapter 12, the pagan version of tongues was called a static babble, a static babble. Uh, and what they would do, which is kind of funny, they would just stand up in the middle of a church service and start blabbering stuff. I mean, it didn't, just making up words and blabbering, right? And then someone else would jump up 
and claim to know what they were saying, and they would say, listen to what the gods are saying. That was called a static babble, and they did it to get attention and look more spiritual than everyone else. Uh, so what happened was when the church started and started growing in Corinth, some of those people who, who had believed that way and, and practiced that kind of infiltrated the Corinthian church. They made their way into the church, and with it came that ecstatic babble that they were passing off as tongues. Okay, now we will discuss, you know, the appropriate use of the gift of tongues in chapter 14, so I'm not going to go too deep in that. But others claimed that they, had, that they were able to speak with angelic tongues, or tongues that were angelic in nature. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels. Remember, there were a lot of people that worshipped, uh, you know, deities and angels and things like that back then outside of God. But they, they claimed to have this ability to speak in an angelic language. And, of course, only a select few could speak in, you know, angelic languages. So they felt that they were superior and they, were, they became really self-righteous. They, they wanted people to think that they were superior to them because they had the gift of being able to talk to angels, which they didn't. Okay? Now, those who truly had the real gift of tongues, this is the irony. The people who really had the true gift of tongues didn't know they had it until God had to use it. They didn't know they had it. And we'll look at this more, like I said, in chapter 14. But on the day of Pentecost, James and John were up speaking. And they were speaking in their own language. They weren't babbling. They weren't doing any angelic talking. They were standing up and speaking in their own native languages. And there were people represented of all different kinds of languages and dialects there. And each one heard them in their own language or dialect. That was the miracle of tongues. It gave them the ability to communicate with people that they otherwise could not communicate with. That's what made the gift so beautiful. Because God was not going to allow something as simple as language to keep them from hearing the gospel. Any gift that God gives someone, He gives it to you to uplift and to edify the church. To further His kingdom purposes. If you have a gift that uplifts you, then it's not a gift from God. If you have a gift from God, people may, they may, you know, be happy with your gift and they may compliment it, but you need to immediately say, well, praise God, it's all Him. Because that's exactly what it is. It's all Him. And God designed every, every gift to be that way. But I'm tempted to keep going on that, but like I said, I don't want to step all over what i got to preach in, in, verse, in chapter, uh, chapter 14. So then he said that even prophecy, even prophecy or knowledge or faith, all those things were useless if they were practiced outside of love. All right, now that had to kind of punch the Corinthians in the mouth. That had to shock them, okay? Because remember, they just about worshipped knowledge and the philosophers and the and the, the prophetic speakers, they, I mean, they just about worship them. And here he says, listen, if you know all prophecy, if you have knowledge just to, you know, solve all the world's mysteries and have faith that you claim can move mountains, but it's not done out of love, it is useless. And this had to shock them a little bit, right? But Paul probably included the word faith in there because people have asked me, well, why would you put faith in it? Well, I'm, I'm assuming he probably included the word faith in there because some of those that were seeking admiration and wanting others to look up to them and to brag on them, they were probably claiming to have done great works of faith because they're so much more faithful than you. So they were probably going around and bragging about that. And so he's saying, oh, yeah, and you guys over there that say you have better faith than everybody else, you're doing it outside love. It's worthless. That's why he threw that in there. Right? And finally, Paul said, even if they 
make the ultimate sacrifice, if they were to sacrifice their body or be martyred or be burned or if they were to sell everything they have and give it to the poor, if your motivation for doing so was not love, it was worthless. Because see, pride, the Bible tells us pride comes before destruction, right? And when someone gets addicted to pride and you can become an addict to pride, where you just are so full of yourself that you have to prove you're better than everyone else in every area. I mean, you can become addicted to that mindset, right? And so there were some people who wanted to become martyrs, not because they cared about the people they were martyred for. They wanted to be legends that would be remembered forever and names would be on high schools, you know, and stuff, and that's what they wanted. There were people that would take everything they had and sell it to the poor. They didn't care about the poor. They were doing that so they could tell everybody, oh, I... I would have more, but, you know, being the generous soul that I am, I sold everything I have and gave it to the poor. Now I live in Swanbury. You know what I mean? And they didn't care about those people. They wanted people to say, what a lovely, godly man. They wanted the notoriety and they wanted the accolades. That's what they wanted. Now, they didn't care about the people they were sacrificing for. So Paul reminded them that, listen, motivation for using a gift, the motivation for using a gift is more important than the gift itself. Right, so the reason you exercise your gift is more important than the gift itself. I want you to remember that. That's very, very important. Because he wanted to remind them that the only motivation for a spiritual gift, for exercising any spiritual gift, had to be love. That's the only one that matters. You could not exercise your spiritual gift for any other reason than your love for God and love for His people. That's why you exercise your spiritual gift. If you weren't doing that, you were in trouble. Because no matter how good you were or what you were doing, it didn't matter. Have you ever heard people with that mindset that says, you know, I'm trying to do more good than bad so that when I get to heaven, the cosmic scale kind of tips in my favor? You ever hear people saying that? I've literally known people who right before they died started doing all kinds of nice stuff and giving stuff away, and, and I'm like, what are you doing? Well, maybe this will get me points with the big guy upstairs. Don't you hate it when they say that, the big guy upstairs? You know? And this is what it's talking about. I'm, I'm telling you, there are so many people like that right he's saying listen it's all worthless everything you're doing is worthless if you don't have love and then we're going to jump to first john real quick in first john chapter four see john actually said something really bold john basically tells us that love is the indicator of whether someone is actually in fellowship with god or out of fellowship with god look at this first john four seven through eight he says beloved let us what love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God right now notice that born of God and knows God we'll deal with that in a second the one who does not love does not know God for God is love right now notice in verse 7 that John encouraged all believers to love one another that's what the whole point was but why he's saying the reason you need to love one another is because when you love other people you are displaying the very essence and nature of God himself. Love is from God, right? God is love. So when you display it, people see God in you. That's what he was trying to say. And one of the easiest ways to tell who is and who is not in close fellowship with God is by how or if they are loving toward other people. And not just believers all people, right? Which I'm feeling guilty because I was really mad at a guy in the drive-thru the other night. But I'm going to let that go. Just saying. All right? I go home, work on my sermon. I'm like, man, 
I didn't yell at him, though, so don't start any rumors. Boy, I wanted to. Anyway, uh, now, there are, two, there are two obvious things, I think, that, that can be said about love in the life of a believer. Okay? And here they are. The one who loves like God, he's saying, is born of God, meaning born again. And the one who loves like God knows God. Now, there's a difference. Everyone who's born again, who believes in Jesus Christ, John chapter 3, it says, you know, he who is born again will see the kingdom of heaven. Listen, everyone who is born again is going to heaven. But knowing God is about having a relationship with him. That's what that's about. And everyone who lives a loving life and loves everyone, they're not only saved, they know God enough to imitate him. They want to be like him. Have you ever noticed when your kids are little, they act like you, they, they start to say and do the things that you do? You know, I, I remember seeing my little girls walking with an apron swinging in front of them that drug the ground, they're tripping over it. Because mom did, you know? And, you know, they didn't copy a lot of what I did. But anyway, they, they you know, the one they look up to, which evidently wasn't me, is, is who they try to imitate, right? Now, it's the same thing. If you know God, if you experientially know God, you're close to God, right? And I'm telling you, the, it's so much more worth it. Just, just being saved is awesome. I'm thankful I'm going to heaven. But when you find out how powerful and amazing God is, it will blow you away. The things that he will teach you, the way that he will touch you, the way that he will lift you up, the way that he will use you, the things he will reveal to you is amazing. And that is knowing God. And you will come in and out of that. There are times we drift away, but that's another sermon. But something you've got to be careful of here, because a lot of people misuse this verse, is notice John didn't say the one who does not love is not born of God. Because people will use that verse to judge people about their salvation, right? And he did not say anything about if they don't love, they're not born of God. He didn't say that. He just used it in the affirmative. And the reason is, is only God, listen, write this down, get a tattoo, listen, only God can judge someone's salvation. Only God. That's why I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, some things that really get my goat, okay? And there's a short list, it's about the size of this room. But here's the things that get my goat. All right, I hate it when people go, well, they just need to get saved then. I'm like, oh, they're not saved? Whoa, you can tell. I'm like, really? Because gossip is one of the worst things you can commit, and you're doing it right now. Are you saved? You know what I mean? Or they always say, well, a, a Christian wouldn't do that. Listen, Christians can do anything unbelievers can do. The difference is God doesn't let us get away with it. He doesn't take our salvation but when he gets that heavenly paddle out, he can lift you off the ground with it. Trust me on that one, right? So I just don't like it when people do that because we are not here to judge people's salvation. That's not our job. Our job is to share the gospel and to love people so that they can get closer to God or get to know him, right? Now, in chapter 2, John reveals something that I think is really important for those people who don't understand what's going on here, okay? In John chapter 2, John revealed that it is possible for a Christian to hate his brother. Those people who say, well, see, if, if they don't know God, if they, if they don't love like they should, then they're not saved. Listen, it is possible for Christian people to hate their brother. Listen to this in John chapter 2. Listen. Verse 11. But the one who what? Hates his what? Hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has, has blinded him. Now, believers don't like to admit that we sin even though the Bible says it time and time and time and time again. And when you are getting involved in a sin, you are walking in darkness, right? So some say John 2.11 proves that when he said people 
you know, that the indicator of what love is and if someone's close to God, if they didn't have that, that's proof that they're not saved because that's what every Christian has. That's the way they believe that, which is absolutely foolish. And this is not talking to unbelievers. That would be totally out of context of the book because John plainly tells his readers that this book was written to believers. First, second, third John were written to believers. What do you think he had mass mailing like they do now when they're trying to sell you windows and he like sent this to everybody? No, he sent it to the church. All right, he sent it to the church. Now listen to this. This kind of proves who he's writing to. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, my little children, which is just a term of endearment that you would use for family, uh, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Would he be asking believers to not sin? And he knew that was impossible because he says, and if anyone sins, we. Now, if he were talking to unbelievers, would he say we? He says, we have an advocate with the Father. Do unbelievers have an advocate with the Father? No, not until they believe, right? Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation or full payment for our sins, our sins. He's including himself and his readers in one, meaning they were believers like him. Would he say our sins if they were unbelievers? Absolutely not. And propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That word in the Greek, whole world, uh, is cosmos. It means everything in existence, right? Basically is what that means. But what he was saying is that he's the propitiation for our sin, meaning us believers, but he also has paid the debt for those who haven't believed. They just haven't accepted it yet. But their debt's paid. No one is going to die without their sin debt being paid. But there's going to be some who died who never had it credited to their account. You see what I mean? It's like me leaving $1,000 in an account and I say, here's the debit card, go get it. And you walk around with that debit card in your pocket your whole life, but you never go to an ATM. If you didn't have a penny to your name, you can't say you died penniless. You had $1,000 in the bank. You just never got it out. That's what happens when believers die apart from God. If they don't believe, they are, they're going to die even though their sins were paid for without ever accepting that full payment. That's what he was talking about. So I think this makes it pretty clear that he was talking to believers, right? Now, to understand John's teachings on love and hate, you first have to know what love and hate mean, and they don't mean what you think, okay? Love, remember this, love is an action. Love is an action, okay? But unfortunately, so is hate. Hate is an action. Both of those words are actions. Now, when you read of the love of God, it's always expressed in an action. You have no idea how hard it was just to pick two verses here. Because I could have kept you here for weeks on this one, okay? But I picked some normal ones. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now notice it says, God so loved the world. He didn't say, I love you, bye. Right? God so loved the world that he gave. You see what I'm saying? It's an, his love is an action. The word's even a verb there. Okay? Romans 5, 8. But God, what? demonstrates his own love see there's an action God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us now the one who truly loves his brother is the one who will show it in how he acts or she acts they act right that's how you'll know I can't stand it when I hear married people saying they love each other and they treat each other terribly 
You know, if you love each other, you'll show it in how you act. There's a lot of people that say, you know, oh, I love you, and then they never spend time with them, or, you know, they're abusive or whatever. Listen, talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. You know what I mean? So, if you say you love your brother, we know if you do by how you treat him. Because love is an action. Love's not that fuzzy feeling you get for the cute kid across from you in art class in seventh grade. Because you're going to have that feeling for a hundred different people. Do you know that? If you think every time you get a fondness for someone you're in love, you are going to have a lot of heartbreak, my friends. Because that's going to come and go many, many, many times. Love is an action. Likewise, if you say you hate your brother, you prove you do by the way you treat them. That's why when people say that they love their brother and then treat them terribly or speak condescendingly to them or they're rude to them or, or always arguing and fighting with them, you don't love them. Your actions say you hate them. It's an action. That's what he was trying to say. And it's sad to me that a believer is capable of hating anyone, especially, especially the fellow believer. Now, there are people in this world I do not like, and I'm not going to list them for you, but there are people in this world I do not like. You know what's sad? There are people in this world I do not like that I do not know. Just from what I know about them, I don't like them. I don't think i got to play golf with Saddam Hussein to figure I didn't like the guy. You know what I mean? There are people I do not like in this world, but I'm telling you, all of them, I don't care if they're radical, I don't care if it was Saddam Hussein, if he was on his deathbed and said, I want you to come and talk to me about Jesus, I'd get on a plane. So that shows that I love him. I don't like him, but I love it. All right? That's how love works. Because people always say, I just, this says love everybody I can. I don't like this person. Hey, newsflash. I may not like you either. But if you need me, I'm going to be there. I will be there for you because that is the love of God being displayed for everyone to see and for you to feel and see. Right? Now, Jesus also spoke, I mean, time and time again about the importance of love when he was walking here on earth. Look at this, uh, Mark 12, 28. He said, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked them, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, what he was trying to do is trying to prove that Jesus didn't know the word of God, which is ironic because he's the one that inspired and wrote it. Okay, verse 29. Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, what? Greater than these. I, I love that. And you know what's sad in this day and age? What's sad in this day and age is that love is the one area I think believers struggle the most. I feel like believers are getting worse and worse about loving other people. I think our hearts are getting harder. You know, I really, I honestly believe that. When we will judge someone that walks in our church before we've spoken a word to them, when we determine whether we want to be around them by what their past might be, when we look at ourselves as better than them, we are not loving. And people wonder why people don't want to go to church. Because we're jerks. Not here at Grace, though, right? Not here. Every other church in the world. No, I'm just kidding. No, there's a lot of good, loving churches out there, but the ones who are judgmental and stuff like that, that's why people don't want to go to church. It's growing in us. And you know why love is dying? 
among Christian people, it's because we're too self-centered to focus on anything that doesn't benefit us. That's sad, but that's true. We are too self-centered to focus on anything that doesn't benefit us first, right? And because of that lack of love, most people can probably count on their hands, one hand, how many true friends you have in your life. True friends. You ever notice that kids throw the word love around like crazy? Oh, that's my best friend. I love her. And then they say they have like 90 best friends. Everybody they're with that weekend is their best friend. You know what I'm saying? That cracks me up. But it's so funny because, I mean, we throw that word around. I, you know, I, I love my wife. I, I love my dog. I love my car. You know what I mean? I love pizza. But I hope that I love my wife differently than a car and, and then a dog. Notice I didn't bring up Jim's pizza on that one. No, I'm just kidding. And, I, and more than that. That's different kinds of love. The two strongest of those is for the pizza and my wife. <laughs> my wife being first. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm just saying my wife is first. But it's a different kind of love. And the Greeks, the Greeks are very specific. They have actually four. People think it's three. There's actually four different variations of love in the Greek. And we'll cover that another day. I'm getting off track here a little bit. But it's just ironic that people were losing that love. And I'm going to give you some examples of the damage that happens as a result of a lack of love. Because of a lack of love, we're seeing marriages fall apart all around us, Christian marriages fall apart all around us. Because we have a lack of love, we're letting social media and TV raise our children. We're content to give our seven-year-old a smartphone and mad when we find out they're doing something they shouldn't with it. Let me let you in on some spiritual knowledge here. They're seven. They're seven, you know? You can't trust them when they're 14. You certainly can't trust them when they're 7. But we give these, uh, these devices to babysit our kids. I was watching a family eat breakfast the other day, and we went out to breakfast. And one kid was about 12, and she had her phone propped up on the table and earbuds in watching something. And the other one had a little mini tablet and was over here like this, and the mother was eating quietly alone, looking at her phone. Family bonding at its finest. You know what I mean? Because love is growing cold, that's the kind of stuff that's happening. Because, because we lack love, churches and believers are constantly squabbling. I don't understand that. You know what? <laughs> there is no church jealousy here. Any, I hope every I mean, Bible-teaching church that knows the truth and shares it in this community grows like wildfire. I want them to grow. I will help them any way I can. Because that is what we're supposed to do if we love like God loves. You know what? We're all on the same team. You think you're going to get a higher seat in heaven if your church has more? You know? I, I just don't understand that. Those are just some of the things. I'm not going to preach on that forever, although I could. Uh, but those are just a few examples. And again, that's why Paul wanted his readers to understand the power of love. So in, in verses 4 through 8a, the first part there, he explains how love behaves in great depth. These are the wedding verses. Now, I'm not going to get through many of them. I'm not even going to get through what I have listed today. Okay? Uh, he explains them in great depth. We're not going to be able to cover it, but look at this. Let's start in the person, how love behaves. It says, love is patient and kind, but I don't have time to teach you that right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> anyway, um, we will go quickly over patience. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. I won't get to bragging and arrogant this week. But the word for patient here is makrothromeo in the Greek, makrothromeo. And it simply means to delay. It means to delay. 
You're probably expecting some real fancy definition. It means to delay. The obvious question is to delay what? What are you supposed to be delaying? The answer is to delay the natural reaction to frustration or anger. Delay that. That feeling that comes in you when someone cuts you off in traffic, delay it before you throw any gang signs. You know what I'm saying? Delay it before you roll that window down. Delay it. I got to work on that one, not the gang signs. Anyway. All right. Uh, when we delay our anger and our frustration with someone, we encourage an attitude of, of love and an attitude of grace and an attitude of compassion. You'd be shocked how simply just taking a few minutes when you're angry with someone or, or someone hurts your feelings or someone makes you mad, uh, you know, and they're frustrated, just taking a few minutes to back away from it, the situation, before you open your mouth. Because see, we think we're, we're, we're better people, bolder people if we just tell them right away what we think. You know, that's not how God asked us to behave, right? Take a few minutes because you're never more like Jesus than when you are patiently displaying love to others even those who transgress you, even those who may crucify you. Loving them enough to die for them is what Jesus did, right? And if it helps you in that battle against anger and learning to love in anger and be patient in anger, remember that God is always patient with you. Would you want God to deal with you the way you deal with other people, the way you deal with people in traffic, the way you deal with people at school, the way you deal with people at work? Is that how you want God to deal with you? If not, Remember, he's always been patient with you. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is what? Patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance or to have a change of mind. Okay? Now today, a lack of patience is, is more detrimental to our spiritual lives than ever, and it really is. And as I said earlier, because of a lack of patience, we don't take time to raise our kids. They get on our nerves, we throw them in front of social media. Right? And we live in a time that is ruled by social media and instant gratification. It seems like alone time with God is disappearing. You talk to people, when's the last time you sat down alone? You got a cup of coffee in your Bible. I still have time for that, Chris. You have time to watch Survivor, right? right? It's disappearing. How about alone time with your family and don't invite the electronic devices? When's the last time you had that? quickly disappearing. Alone time with your friends without your devices, quickly disappearing. As a pastor, I believe that, that the technology we have can be a blessing and a curse. I'm not that old fuddy does that goes, they should get rid of everything that's tech. That's not me. There's good and there's bad. There's a blessing and a curse of it. You know, they're great for keeping up with family that are long distances away. It's awesome. I've got over a thousand screenshots of my daughter, of my daughter's baby, my grandbaby. Over a thousand you know, I didn't realize I'm not good at Snapchat, so I didn't know you could save and chat for a long time. So everything she'd snap... The only reason I have Snapchat is for my grandbaby. That's why I probably never answered you if you sent me something. But I literally have... And I'm not exaggerating. I can show you, and I'd be happy to. I have over a thousand screenshots of my grandbaby. It's great for that. It's great for keeping up with family. It does make life more convenient. I like depositing a check with my phone, don't you? Love that. Look. <laughs> They're going to preach. Now we're talking, right? But it also gives us, the downside, it also gives us countless ways to be offended and countless ways to get into silly arguments. I've counseled hundreds of people who have been offended by a post, an email, or a text. I can't tell you how many people have been offended by that because here's what I call it, keyboard bravery. You're so tough when you're behind a keyboard. Face-to-face, -face, things change. God knows that. So that's why he wants you to be face-to-face, -face, right? But usually... 
uh, you know, something posted by a, an impatient or, or impulsive Christian who didn't take time to pray or even think before he clicked or for posting is the one who's guilty of making them upset. Now, I rarely post on social media because I just don't have the free time to mess with it. And when I do have free time, I am not going to spend it behind a screen. You know what I mean? But when I do get a chance to look at it, I'm sad at how many Christian people can allow themselves to get sucked into stupid arguments that show hatred. I'm shocked about that. It, it, it saddens me. And you can always tell when somebody has their feelings hurt because no one can, can form a cognitive thought without posting it anymore. You know, you ever notice that? You can tell when something's up. Someone goes, well, I guess I have to work today because someone didn't show up to work today. And you never, and you're going, oh my gosh. Work and shut up. You know what I mean? There's days you didn't show up. You can always tell everybody's emotion. I told my daughters they're going to, the next generations are going to live in glass houses. There will be no privacy and no secrets. Because they even post their meals for crying out loud. I'm too big of a pig. I eat them. You know what I'm saying? I don't post them. When they get mad at somebody, they ran on a post. You know, that's not love and that's not patient and that's not kind. Kindness is showing someone love. Right? You know, if someone makes you mad, you know what's crazy? The Bible tells you how to deal with that. It tells you to go to them. Listen to this, Matthew 5, 23-25. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent uh, at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. I've said this so many times. For all you who have keyboard bravery, those people who love to say stuff when they're hiding in their basement with their cell phone eating Cheetos, listen. Character is defined by who you are and what you do when no one's looking. Character is who you are and what you do when no one is looking. Right? True love waits before it reacts. Right? And the same goes for person-to-person communication. Who heard of that anymore, right? So when Christian people are snippy and nasty and condescending to others, it's a sign of two things. First, that they're not acting out of love, the kind of love that Paul talked about in chapter 13. And second, that they're either out of fellowship with God or soon will be, if that's how you treat other people. You're either out of fellowship or soon will be. If you find that you constantly have to apologize for hurting people with your speech and actions, or even worse, you don't apologize, right? Pray that God gives you more love, kindness, and patience. Remember, when we act out of anger instead of love, and when we act out of anger without being patient, you can expect sin to be the result. We'll finish with this verse, James 1.19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to to anger for the anger of man does not achieve what the righteousness of God you can't please God angry now there's an anger of God I'm angry that people in Sudan are being murdered for loving Jesus that's okay but it says the anger of man meaning it's about you you can't be mad because someone did something to you and do anything about it that's going to please God chew on that one for a little bit Okay, now we're going to pick up there next week, but I want to I go and take a look at something. Today, we're celebrating the fact that we have been a church for 25 years. Wednesday is when uh, that was, April 12th. And I'm just going to give you a, kind of a brief catch-up. Um, we started in a reception hall of a Greek restaurant. 
Remember when the Miller's Place used to be a Greek restaurant? We started there with 14 people setting up chairs. Our, our sound system was basically a jam box with some speakers. It was sad, man. Uh, we had musicians that were still in training, but were given everything they had, right? And uh, we paid the bills by everybody coming together and, and pooling our resources. That's how we paid it. I don't know how we did it. It was $900 a month. <laughs> this is back in 98, man. I don't, that's God that we had that, right? So we grew to about 30 there, and everybody said we'd never make it. We moved to a storefront downtown where the pizza forum is now. Here's the best breadsticks in the world. And we would go there, and we remodeled the whole thing, and we had a church, and we thought we were on top of the world. You know, we thought it was Crystal Cathedral. We had Sunday school rooms now. And everybody said we wouldn't make it. And we grew to 100 there. One night at that little service, at the little church, we were hosting a missions group uh, from the seminary, and, and, uh, and some of the kids were not in school yet. They were 15, 16, not in Bible school or anything, and they all came up to help us. And one of the kids said, we hear that First Christian is going to be selling this church. And I remember thinking in my mind, fat chance we could buy that. And one of the little girls was like 2 in the morning because nobody was sleeping, trust me on that one. They said, you know what we should do? And being the spiritual man, I didn't come up with this idea. They said, we should go down and put our hands on that building and pray that God gives it to us. And I'm like, isn't that sweet? Let's go do it because I am tired. We came down here and put our hands on the front of that building and asked God to make way for us to have it. I got a phone call and they offered this building to us. And they gave us a price and it might as well have been $10 million. We didn't have it. And we hadn't been to church long enough to get a loan. And so I remember telling them, well, we'd have to be on land contract and this would have to be our payment. And the guy like laughed. You know, I could tell, not out loud, but I could see in his eyes, laughter was abounding in his heart. He said, I'll take it to the board. And I said, well, listen, here's the way I see it. Is it if God wants us to have it, no one else will get it. If he doesn't want us to have it, I don't want it. Well, let me know. I hung the phone up and thought, I'll never hear from that dude again. Three days later, he called back and said, come sign the paper. We decided to get it. We came over, and we got it for what we asked to get it for, and we remodeled it three times uh, since then. And we grew from 100 to where we are now. Uh, and I'm telling you, God has blessed us so richly. It's just been amazing. And while we've been a church, we have planted churches in Secunderabad, India, and Hyderabad, India, and Albion. And we have an active home church in the Philippines. Uh, we've helped train over 1,500 pastors in India. 1,500 pastors in India. We've helped support numerous ministries who are uh, doing something excellent and we, we, just, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. We just said, will you do this better than us? You do it. And we got it to them. And we've supported them. God has been good to us. We have seen so many great things. We, you know, the reason I got into softball was for a ministry of this church. God has blessed us so richly. But listen, here's my challenge to you this week. This is how we want to celebrate it. Next week, we're going to have a carry-in. 